Good morning. It's wonderful to see you all on such a beautiful morning. Some uh, new faces and to welcome back some faces that we haven't seen for a while. Uh, you're very, very welcome. The only thing I need to mention before we start is just to invite you back again uh, this evening at 6 p.m. Now that we've restarted our evening services, we've decided uh, for the time being to use the second Sunday evening of the month as a prayer service. We've done those before, but we're going to make that a little more regular. So 6 p.m., I encourage you to join us as we pray for our fellowship and for our country and then wider afield as we remember some of the missionaries we support in prayer as well. So that's this evening. And that's all I need to tell you in advance of our time of worship this morning. We're going to begin our worship by reading together some words from God's Word, from Ephesians chapter 2. They will be on the screen behind me in just a moment. But these uh, words that we're going to read, they are a reminder to us of what God has done for us in Christ. These verses speak about the depths God has lifted us from and the new position we have in Christ all because of God's love and grace. So we'll stand to read these words, and then after we have read them and we're seated again, the musicians will lead us in a couple of songs. So let's stand together, please, and we'll read from God's Word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Shame, my God. 
dear Heavenly Father, what a wonderful Saviour you are. And we come as a real thankful people today. For when we were dead in our sins, you showed unfathomable mercy and love towards us. By your grace, even when we didn't deserve it, you pulled us out of that miry pit. When we were following our own sinful desires and going our own way, you saved us, as we could do nothing to save ourselves except to turn to you. And we praise and thank you for saving us, for sending Jesus as our Saviour and for turning our hearts to you. Thank you that our lives are now secure in you. For we recognise we still need you and your help every minute of every day to remain faithful and to battle against sin. We ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to guard our hearts against temptation and keep us walking close to you. And we pray, Lord, for our loved ones, uh, our families and our friends that aren't saved. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bring people to yourself and to save our loved ones. We thank you, Lord, that even in these times we are able to meet here to worship you today. We ask that you'll help us to praise and worship you as you deserve as our wonderful Saviour. And we pray for those who can't be with us today, Lord, through illness. We pray for Pete. Uh, who is self-isolating before his cataract off. We think of Pat Salt and Carol and John uh, Lord, and we ask that you will be with them today as they can't be with us. We pray for Jill and Mike as Mike starts his chemotherapy and radiotherapy tomorrow, Lord, that you would be with them. And Lord, we pray for June today as she's shielding Miles, Lord, and we do, Lord, ask you to draw near to her and to... Uh, enabled to, to feel your presence with her, Lord, and that we are thinking about her and all of her. Lord, we thank you for answered prayer that um, Lord Zoe managed to secure uh, a job at one of the interviews she went for this week, and we praise you for that. Lord, in this current situation, we pray for our governments as they make decisions, uh, Lord, about us and how we can behave and how we can meet, and we would ask that you would help them to make wise decisions, Lord. We pray that a vaccine would soon be found so that we could go back to meeting as we normally would. And we pray for your help and guidance as a church as we start to begin to plan how we can open up ministries, Lord, while still um, conforming to the current regulations. So we do ask that you'll be with us this service, that you will speak to us, Lord, and that we will praise you as we will. Amen. We've heard about God's goodness. We've uh, reminded ourselves of it. But we know, don't we, that despite God's goodness, so often we can be fearful people. So many things make us afraid. And what we find in Scripture is that often our God comes to reassure and to comfort his fearful people. We're going to hear from the musicians now some of God's own words to his people from Isaiah chapter 43. God says to his people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I'm 
this point our Sunday school are going to be moving next door. And if you're a primary school age, you're welcome to join in with the Sunday school. If you're not sure and you want to have a little look, you can and come back. If, uh, if you don't want to stay in there, that's fine. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 6, please. Last week in the book of Judges, we were introduced to a new enemy and to a new deliverer. The new enemy is Midian. The Midianites are raiders, and every year they sweep in from the east on their camels with their friends, and they help themselves to Israel's crops. That's the new enemy. The new deliverer is a man called Gideon, and he seems to be a naturally timid and cautious man. But the angel of the Lord greeted him by saying to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And the angel then delivered God's promise to Gideon. I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. But before he did that, Gideon had a job to do at home. The Lord told him he was to tear down his father's altar to Baal. Gideon was fearful, we were told, but he did it. He obeyed and he survived. Amazingly, his father Joash defended him when the townspeople wanted to kill him. So Gideon's first act of obedience went well. But that was just the warm-up for the main event. And this morning we come to the main event. We're going to pick up at chapter 6, verse 33, and see how God saves God's way. We'll read from chapter 6, verse 33 through to the end of chapter 7. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, 
God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The enemy of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the man down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran. 
crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah near Zerera as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is God's word. And it shows us, first of all, that God knows we are weak. After the idol smashing in Gideon's hometown, right at the start of our passage, chapter 6, verse 33, reminds us of the pressing problem in Israel. The Midianites and their pals cross the Jordan River from the east and they camp in the valley of Jezreel just like they have every year for the last seven years. They're here to ravage the land, just like they have for the past seven years. But this year, the Midianites are going to have a different experience in Israel because God has raised up a deliverer. And verse 34 says, The Spirit of the Lord came on that deliverer. In other words, the Lord gives Gideon power and boldness Gideon doesn't naturally have. And in that power of the Lord, Gideon summons not only his own clan, the Abizrites, but also his tribe, Manasseh, and the other northern tribes of Israel, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. The tribes respond to his call to arms. They're sick of the Midianites. And they are ready now to rally around a leader. We're told later that 32,000 men responded to Gideon's call. And it's significant that his own clan are among them. Because last week we saw the Abizrites ready to kill Gideon because he'd smashed their altar to Baal. But it seems they ended up being impressed with his bold move. They're willing to follow a man who has that kind of courage. And apparently Gideon's reputation spread pretty far, pretty quickly. Suddenly he's being seen in Israel as a heroic leader, a lion-hearted warrior. But that's not who Gideon really is. The Lord may be about to use Gideon to do something great, but if that happens, it will be down to the Lord's presence and the Lord's power. It will not be because Gideon is a superhero. Whatever people think of Gideon, whatever reputation he has, whatever public image he projects, Gideon by himself is a hesitant and a fearful man. And that comes out when the crowds aren't watching. And Gideon is alone with God. 
Verse 36 tells us, after assembling this great army, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Now you may not have come across this passage before, but if you have heard of this before, the chances are you've heard it used in connection with seeking guidance from God, trying to discern the Lord's will. This passage is often spoken about as if Gideon does this thing with a fleece because he wants to know what he's supposed to do. But a close look at the text shows us that is not the case at all. Gideon has no doubt what he's supposed to do. Back in chapter 6 verse 14, God had told him, go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. In verse 16, God said, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. Gideon knows what he's supposed to do. And he admits that here in verse 36. Lord, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. And again in verse 37, if you do this trick with the fleece, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. Gideon is not looking for guidance here. He's not seeking God's will. He knows what God wants him to do. What Gideon is looking for is reassurance. Despite the earlier visit from God's special angelic messenger, despite the sign the angel gave him causing fire to consume Gideon's sacrifice, Despite the fact that when he smashed their Baal altar, his father and his clan have sided with him instead of killing him. Despite the army of 32,000 who have responded to his call and they're now lined up outside his tent, ready to follow him into battle. Despite all of those confirmations that God is with him, Gideon lacks confidence in the Lord. He hesitates to move forward in obedience. He's fearful. And he makes this silly request to the Lord. Will you make the fleece wet and the ground dry? So what are you and I to make of this? Are we being given a model way of relating to God here? Is this a blueprint for obedience? Don't do what God says until he performs a trick of your own choice. No, that is not the point. Well then, are we being encouraged to shake our heads at how pathetic Gideon is? What a loser he is for being so hesitant and weak? No, that's not the point either. The point here is not about Gideon at all. It's about God. God knew what Gideon was like before he chose him for this job. And God is neither shocked nor despairing when Gideon's frailty shows itself. Instead, God graciously and compassionately agrees to reassure this weak servant again.
He condescends to do the thing with the fleece. And when Gideon asks God to reverse the trick the next night, God does that too. The remarkable thing here is not God's ability to make things wet or dry. The remarkable thing is God's willingness to do it. It's a gesture of patience and consideration for his hesitant servant. Aren't you glad to belong to this God? Because this is not out of character for our God. This is what he's like. Listen to Psalm 103 describing our God. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're not superheroes. Our trembling hearts are no shock to God. Yes, where there is defiance in our hearts, where there's an unwillingness to listen to him and obey him, then we need to hear warnings about judgment. But when the issue is not defiance, when the issue is a need for reassurance that his promises are true, that he is with us, that his power is enough for us, when that's our struggle, our God overflows with compassion. So come to him in your own struggles. I don't recommend setting up tests with balls of wool. No. But I do recommend doing the other thing that Gideon did. Bring God's own promises to him. Remind him of his promises to his people in Scripture. Ask him to give you confidence in those promises. Ask God to give you confidence in him, the God of the promises. He knows we are weak. It's not a surprise to him. And when we come to him for reassurance, he is as ready to help us as he was to help Gideon. This God who knows us so, so well, he understands something else about us too. God knows we are proud. That's one of the great ironies of our human condition. We are dust. And it's so obvious we're dust. We even see it in ourselves much of the time. We sense our weakness and our frailty. But at the very same time, we have this deep-seated pride in us. And as fearful as we can be in the face of a challenge, when God brings us through it, we're quick to imagine we somehow did it ourselves. And so this God who has such patience for us in our weakness, he also works to nullify our pride. That's what he does here in Israel. Gideon has received his own reassurance from God. Now he and all Israel 
need to learn to celebrate God's strength instead of their own. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. No one but God could say, Your army's too big for me to defeat the enemy. Could you imagine a human ruler ever saying that? But God does not look at situations the way you and I do. He never looks at a situation and says, I don't have enough power and resources to deal with this. He never says that about a situation. But God may well look at a situation and say, I'm going to reduce my people's power and resources. Why might he do that? Because he knows our rotten pride. And he wants to free us from the illusion that we can save ourselves. He wants to deliver us from the tendency we have to boast in our own strength. And so God often takes away our strength. Here he does that through a radical whittling down of Gideon's impressive army. First God gets rid of 22,000 of them at a stroke by giving the fearful ones a chance to leave, that leaves 10,000. And I wonder what Gideon's thinking at this point. Are you sure about this, Lord? Would it hurt to try and keep some of those 22,000 who are walking away? But God says, no, we don't need more. We need a whole lot less. So verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many of them. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the man down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. As a boy, I had a jigsaw puzzle with a really good painting of this scene on it. And I can remember looking at the front of the box, trying to figure out, how does the way you drink water make you a better or a worse soldier? How did God know that the lappers would be better fighters than the kneelers? Well, of course, the way that you drink water says nothing at all about how good a fighter you are. And that is the point. God was not trying to select the best soldiers here. He just wanted a very small group of soldiers. If the kneelers had been the smaller group, they would have been chosen. If God had been looking for men of steel, 
he wouldn't have chosen Gideon to lead them in the first place. This army of 300 led by Gideon is a sign of Israel's weakness, not Israel's strength. God has chosen the few instead of the many so that when victory comes, Israel will have caused to boast in the Lord and not in themselves. And God's strategy has not changed. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So it doesn't matter whether we're speaking about Old Testament Israel or the church today. God knows the foolish pride in all of our hearts. He knows our tendency to boast in ourselves any chance we get. And so he chooses an army of the few. He chooses to work through the weak and the unimpressive. In his mercy, he often chooses to take away our strength. And he does it to free us from the illusion we can save ourselves. So we're on the wrong track if we're searching for impressive looking churches filled with apparently dynamic people. Instead, let's focus on our impressive God. He is the dynamic one. Now, of course, he gives gifted people to his church and we're thankful for that. But let's learn to trust and to boast in God himself. Because without him, big numbers and confident leaders are nothing. Unless our focus is on God himself, those other things just become fuel for our stupid pride. And on an individual level, don't we often lament our own failing strength? Maybe our physical abilities or our energy. We get so depressed when we can't do what we used to do. But isn't that an opportunity for us to begin to see what has actually been true all along? We've always been weak, even at our very best. The true strength has always been in God's hands. Even at our physical peak, we've always been dependent on him. We've never had any reason to boast in ourselves. Isn't that a silver lining to the aging process? We begin to see through our own delusions of grandeur. And we can boast all the more in our God. 
Now I know I'm open to the accusation this is very easy for me to say. I still have both my own hips, a good bit of my own hair. So listen to these words of the late Jim Packer. For those of you who haven't heard of him, he was a theologian and preacher who died earlier this year at the age of 93. At the age of 89, when he was going downhill rapidly in terms of his physical health, he had in fact just lost his eyesight at this point. In the midst of that decay, he was interviewed and he was asked by the interviewer, would you say you are encouraged? Interesting question. When your body's falling apart, would you say you're encouraged? This was his reply. Yes. I don't see how any Christian under any circumstances can't be encouraged who focuses on God. I don't see how any Christian can be discouraged because God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And our hope is in Christ. Those things don't change. And those are the things to focus on. When he spoke those words, Jim Packer had been stripped of the things in himself that he might have put his hope in. His eyesight was gone. His body was shutting down. But that only helped him put his hope in God. God knows we're weak and he responds with great patience. He knows we're proud and he often responds by removing the source of our pride. And then finally, something else in this passage. God loves to display his power in our weakness. Here in the Valley of Jezreel, whittling down Gideon's army was never an end in itself. The ultimate aim is to set the stage for a display of God's power. But before that happens, God invites Gideon to go with his servant and take an evening stroll. Earlier we saw Gideon ask God for reassurance, but now on the eve of the battle, God gives reassurance Gideon has not asked for. Look in the middle of verse 8. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand in the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. 
He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. We're supposed to get the contrast here between Gideon's little army of 300 and the vast hordes of the enemy army. In fact, in the dream this Midianite soldier has, Gideon and his army are pictured as a loaf of bread that comes bouncing down the hill into this huge encampment. This has got to be the only place ever where an army has been compared to a loaf of bread. What could be less intimidating and dangerous than a loaf? It's a sign of how little these Midianites have to fear from Gideon and his 300 men. But actually, they are afraid. Because in the dream, the unimpressive loaf destroys the camp. It flattens it. How do they know Gideon by name? Well, presumably they've heard his name from their spies. And they take this dream as a sign Gideon and his piffling little army are going to rout them through God's power. When Gideon has listened, he worships the God who can go ahead of him, can use even a dream to undermine the enemy's confidence. Then Gideon races back to get his men ready, and even as he does that, the comparison with a loaf of bread looks all the more appropriate. Apparently, they don't have a single sword between the lot of them. Look at verse 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Why not give them all scrubbing brushes as well to add to these other useless things they're carrying? What can they do with no weapons? But in fact, God has thousands and thousands of weapons at his disposal. They're all in the Midianite tents at the moment. And what happens is in the dark, Gideon and his men fan out around the perimeter of the camp. And at the start of the middle watch, which is just after midnight, they blow their horns, they wave their torches, and they shout together a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. That's not going to kill anyone, of course. But it causes a mad panic in the camp. And verse 22 says, When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Gideon and his men are so weak they didn't have a sword between them. But that was no hindrance to God. The Midianite swords are his swords. And in the dark and the confusion and the noise, God causes the Midianites to hack each other down. And now that the victory has been won and the Midianites are fleeing east to get back across the Jordan River, now the Israelite troops who'd been sent away earlier, they join the chase with Gideon and his 300. The Ephraimites, they join in too and they catch a couple of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. 
and they deliver their heads to Gideon, which is a bit of a grisly present. But it is evidence that a great victory has been won. It's not been won by a large army. Gideon didn't have a large army. It's not been won by superior weapons. Gideon and his men had no weapons. This victory has been won by God's strength. And he used Gideon and his swordless man because God loves to display his power in our weakness. So never try and measure what God can do by looking at your own ability or your own courage or the size of his church or the number of high-profile Christian celebrities you can find. Maybe there's a reason Christian celebrities are thin on the ground. Maybe there's a reason the church generally tends to look fairly fragile and unimpressive most of the time. Maybe it's because the God we worship today is the same God who displayed his power long ago through an army without weapons. He's the same God who defeated sin and death and hell through a crucified Savior. Jesus Christ won a great victory, but he did not win that victory with a sword in his hand. Jesus won his victory by allowing himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. But in those hours of weakness, leading up to the cross and then on the cross, in those hours of great weakness, God was at work, breaking the power of the devil. And today, as you and I follow Jesus in our own weakness, he says to us what he said to the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. So as we look ahead to this week, let's start by admitting our weakness. Let's thank God he loves to reassure us when we come to him in weakness. And let's offer ourselves to him again, trusting him to show his power in our weakness. Let's be open to how he might use us this week in conversations we have as we seek to be faithful in small ways in our responsibilities at work, at home, Let's never think that any situation is too mundane for God to be at work in it and to be at work in it through us. Let's be alert and available to serve him. And if you've never got to the point of admitting you can't save yourself, if you're still aiming to overcome sin and to please God by your own effort and achievement, it's time to give that up. Come to Jesus, trust in Him as your Savior.
and you will receive forgiveness and life as a gift. A gift that Jesus won for you on the cross. Our focus needs to be not on ourselves, but on God. And so we're going to close with a song that lifts our eyes up to our great God. It calls us to behold our God.
And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. Thank you. 